This morning, we are, this is our last Eastertide sermon before we start in the Psalms next Sunday, and it's, we're talking about resurrection and intercession, and we're really talking about the, uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, and if you don't know what intercession is, intercession is the action of intervening on behalf of another. Um, so we have a slide for that. Intercession is the action of intervening on behalf of another. If you're a parent, you've certainly intervened on behalf of your children, right? Um, you may intervene with the school teacher or the doctor, um, or um, if you uh, have ever gone to someone to put in a good word for someone else, You've intervened for them, probably because you had a relationship uh, with another person that the person you were intervening for did not have. Um, at work, you may intercede on behalf of your clients or intervene on behalf of your employees or other people. Uh, and uh, lawyers intercede on behalf of others all the time. In fact, one of the reasons why a lawyer can do more for you in court than you can do for yourself is because they've probably appeared before the judge many times and have a rapport and a relationship with that judge. And so they can do more things for you in court than if you were to represent yourself because they have a relationship with uh, the judge you don't have. It is interesting in 1 John chapter 2, this is certainly the language used that says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so this idea of Jesus as an an intercessor or one who intervenes for us is certainly found in Scripture. Also, in Hebrews 7.25, it says that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Again, these are all the fruits of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, ascended, and now he, according to Romans 8.34, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he lives forever to make intercession for us. He intervenes for us. This is the legacy of Jesus' resurrection, his ongoing intercession for us or intervening for us in the same way that the Old Testament priest intervened for the people when he went into the Holy of Holies. If you're not familiar, the Old Testament high priest once a year went into that really holy place in the tabernacle and in the temple, and he offered sacrifices on behalf of the people and prayed for the people. His personal prayers were on behalf of the people intervening for them and interceding for them. Well, in John 17, 126, Jesus prays just such a prayer. So let's read it. John 17, verses 1 through 26. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, 
and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. A lot of personal pronouns going on here. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas, that is, that the scripture might be fulfilled, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but, I, but also for those who will believe in the future in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be, be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even Though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made, known to them, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this rich word, this prayer of Jesus. Help us to be transformed by it as we spend the next few minutes unpacking it, learning from it, and submitting ourselves under the power and weight of its authority and intent. Let us be convicted and convinced of its truth and be transformed, leaving this place differently than the way we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned a minute ago that this prayer has been called the high priestly prayer. I think that term, that phraseology was coined somewhere in the 16th century, but it is, many have called it, the holy of holies of prayer. There is absolutely and utterly nothing like it in all of Scripture. This is the prayer of all prayers. From Genesis to Revelation, like I said, there is absolutely nothing in the Bible like this prayer. Now, we're told Jesus prayed many times before, but we're not really told what Jesus prayed to the Father. In fact, the content of Jesus' frequent prayers to the Father, and yes, Jesus needed to pray. That might be a shocker for some of us. 
but Jesus needed to pray while he was in the flesh. He needed to be empowered by the Spirit. And I can imagine Jesus, in fact, I've, I try, I don't know that I'm good at it, but I try to, I've, especially in recent years, as I've learned more about the prayer life of Jesus, to model my own life in just these little, you know, multiple times throughout the day, just bowing my head to the Father and crying out for help. Because I can see Jesus, as he encountered challenges throughout the day, having little prayer moments with the Father, because he recognized how much he needed that empowerment while he was in his earthly ministry. And if he needed empowerment by the Spirit, how much more do we? And if we are not following that model, there might be an explanation there in why we stumble, maybe why we fall, maybe why there is not that connection with God that we long for. It is to be found in the life of prayer. There is a hidden life of prayer that Jesus lived with the Father, and this prayer is magnificent. There is utterly nothing like it in all of Scripture. In this prayer, the covers are revealed to the kind of uh, relationship and intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. It in, and it is doctrinally rich. Now, that's not what our sermon is about this morning, but this prayer is doctrinally rich. I'll just highlight just a few of them as we read through. Maybe these jumped out at you. These jumped out at me. In it is the doctrine of the pre-existence of the Son, where in verse 5, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What a revelation. In it is the doctrine of particular atonement. In verse 9, he says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those out of the world whom you have given me. And there is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in verse 12, where Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, and not one of them was lost. It is doctrinally rich. These are all in the passage, and it serves as proof texts. Certainly, it's a proof text for those doctrines. There's no doubt about that. But I want to focus on three petitions, three things that Jesus prays for us as his people. Now, as the time of Jesus' departure drew near, and certainly Jesus is anticipating his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has some anxiety about leaving the disciples behind. You say, really? Jesus had anxiety? Well, sure. He was fully man. Isn't anxiety a sin? Well, it can be, but not always. Jesus certainly, as a fully human, right, fully divine but fully human, the, the fully human Jesus certainly was concerned for the disciples as he was anticipating his departure. And so he prays for not only the disciples, but everyone who will believe, including us, the church. Here we are all these years later, all these centuries later. And he cries out in verses 1 through 5, first praying for himself. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, I don't know... And hopefully you've never prayed, Father, glorify me. That does not seem an appropriate prayer for sinners like us, but it is absolutely an appropriate prayer for Jesus because, well, he is God in the flesh. And he is one with the Father, and the Father's glory is his glory, and so it is completely appropriate for him to say, Father, glorify me now. 
Because the glory that you see in Jesus is the glory of the Father, because as Hebrews 1 says, he is the exact imprint and radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is a mirror of God's own glory, so it is fitting that he says, glorify me now. It is also interesting when we think about this prayer that this is actually the Lord's prayer. You know, the Lord's prayer in in Matthew is not really the Lord's prayer, it's the disciples' prayer. If you think, well, you mean Jesus didn't pray that prayer, our Father who art in heaven? Well, you can imagine why he wouldn't pray that prayer, because it says, forgive us of our sins. Jesus couldn't pray a prayer like that because he was sinless. But this is really the Lord's prayer. This is really the prayer that Jesus prayed. This is really his prayer. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life. Now get this. This is eternal life that they know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And this may come as a shocker because Jesus says eternal life is not living forever or being raised from the dead or abiding in heaven. It is to know God. Eternal life is the knowledge of God. It is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he's sent. That's it. That's eternal life to know the true God. Jesus says this is what eternal life is. And so number one, Jesus' desire for his people, the first petition, is that they might know the only true God through Jesus Christ. Now knowing's a funny word in our modern age because when we think about knowing, we think about mental assent, right? You can know something with your head, but the, the, the kind of the ancient Aramaic and biblical idea of knowing involves much more than mental assent. In fact, that's not even really what it's talking about. To know someone is to have intimacy, to the exchange of relationship and love and closeness. And in this context, when Jesus says that they might know the only true God, he's talking about love and obedience and fellowship. So to know God is to have love for God and to obey him. It is not just to have the kind of knowledge about God, right? Knowing God is not knowing about God. Any college professor of philosophy knows about God and can raise all these clever questions, right? They're really good at that, right? You go through the university and the philosophy professor will raise all these clever questions because they know all the questions and they know all the angles when you talk about God, but they may not and often do not know God. You can know about God, but they do not know God in the sense that Jesus is talking about, this intimate relationality and exchange of love and obedience towards this being. To know God includes a commitment to Jesus Christ whom God has sent, and this gets at sort of a sub-point of this idea of knowing God. It is interesting that Jesus does not just say that they might know God, but he tacks on, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is really important. Because to deny the Son is to deny the only true knowledge of the Father. Why? Why can't a person know God without knowing Jesus? Why is that, why is that an essential component of the knowledge of God. God has in some ways hidden his person 
and only revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Luke 10.22 says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. True knowledge of God has been delivered to humanity through the incarnation of the Son. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that those you know, uh, 39 books of the Old Testament, that God was not fully known until Jesus came, across, came, came along? In some sense, yes. That the knowledge and person and character of God was known in part and was deliberately, in some ways, held back until the incarnation of Jesus. Because the embodiment of Jesus as a human being reveals something about God that otherwise could not be known before the incarnation. Otherwise, the incarnation is superfluous. It's unnecessary. But the incarnation accomplishes something about God in the person and work of his son, Jesus, that otherwise we would not be able to know about God. Knowledge of God is inside knowledge, and to get inside knowledge, you need what? An insider. And Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, revealing the first and the third. I hope this is not too heavily theological. I'm, I'm trying to make it plain. I'm trying to make it connect. But the idea is that the triune Godhead, which has existed for all time in heaven, one of them came to earth to reveal the other two, including himself. So knowledge of God is inside knowledge, and in, to have inside knowledge, you need an insider, and that's what Jesus is. He's an insider. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus. Number two, Jesus next prays for his people that they would be kept and guarded by the word. So number one, knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, first part of the prayer. Second part is that the, that. God's people, you and I, starting with his disciples, then anyone who would ever believe in Jesus would be kept and guarded by the word. Listen to what he says in verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, and they've kept your word. I'm summarizing and paraphrasing. They've kept your word, for I've given them the word that, you've ga that you gave me, and they have received them. Holy Father, keep them in your name. I have given them your word, yet the world hates them because they are not of the world. Jesus sees the hostility of the world, certainly experiencing in his own person the hatred of the world, knowing his disciples will experience the same type of hatred. In fact, the Beatitudes end with that promise, right? That we will be hated, right? Blessed are you, the very last beatitude, when, when, when men persecute you and revile you and speak all manner of evil against you for my sake, right? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And so Jesus anticipates that no matter how kind of clever we are, no matter how skillful our apologetic presentation of what we believe is, and we should work on those things, right? We want to lean into the questions of our culture and find those answers and graciously engage people who are skeptics or have doubts, right? We're not building walls to separate us from the culture. We are engaging the culture as confessing children of God, right? And this is probably where some churches have gotten off and really become irrelevant is they just dismiss the questions of the culture. But what Jesus is describing here is this symbiotic relationship between 
keeping the word and being kept by the word in a hostile world. So in his mind, his prayer is, in this hostile world that we live in, which will hate us because we're not of the world, keep them, Father, through the word. I've given them your word, and they've kept your word. And so here's the symbiotic relationship. Those who keep the word are kept by the word, if that makes sense. As we lean into the word, as we read scripture, as we let it wash over our lives, in fact, that's what coming to church every single Sunday morning is all about. It is about a formal time where the word of God washes over us because we get busy during the week, and it'd be great if we all read our Bibles every day. You should, but sometimes you don't. And so we come together in this place of fellowship, not just for the word, but for prayer and the sacraments and fellowship. But the word washes over us, and in the washing and regeneration of the word of God, we're kept by it, we keep the word, and it keeps us. And so he says, Lord, I've given them your word. It is a safeguard in a hostile world because of its promises. You know, there are guarantees um, that you might have about different areas of your life that comfort you, that keep you, right? When I'm feeling alone, or maybe Maribel and I feel estranged, maybe we get in an argument, I remind myself, no, my wife loves me. And reminding myself of the, the kind of the promise of her love, which she has iterated to me more times than I can count in 27 years of marriage, I think, no, she loves me. And I can go back and say, you know, hon, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I snapped at you earlier. And she usually puts her hands on my shoulder and she, and she tilts her head sideways. She says, I love you and I'm sorry too. And I'm reminded of those promises. And so the word of God reminds us of God's promises especially when we encounter doubt, when we encounter hostility from the world, when we encounter fear and anxiety, when we are uncertain about what the future holds. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where my future was like a big question mark. And there is nothing more unsettling than to feel like your future is up in the air, right? That's hard. And the word of God provides these promises that God is with us and he loves us and it tells us it tells us about God. It tells us who God is. And I just want to say something. There are two ways to live your life as a Christian. Um, there is to look at the world, to look at your life, to look at circumstances in front of you and say, this is what's true about God. I mean, just think of the nightly news. And then there is this approach. No, this is what's true about God. And I want to say that if you don't regularly do that, no, no. Shut that off for a minute. This is what's true about God. You will find yourself in perpetual discouragement, believing a lie. And the Bible even tells us we walk not by sight, but by faith. And so when those images of the world come up, you know, it's like a mirage. It comes up in front of you, and it says, this is where your life is headed. This is the disaster that awaits you. Think everything's going to fall apart, whether it's your health or your finances or your family, your children or your job, and you have to put the word of God in front of you and almost block it. Say, no, this is what's true. This is what's true about God and my relationship with him. This is how I'm loved. This is who God is. This is his character. This is his nature. And skepticism really comes in when we stop doing that, when the only thing we're looking at is the image of the world around us, the circumstances, the situation, whatever it may be. And so we have to go back to the word for its promises. Hebrews 4.12 says this, 
The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's like when you read the Bible, the Bible's telling you about yourself. So it's telling you about God, the character and nature of God. It's also telling you about yourself. And you say, oh, I'm wicked. <laughs> I have to watch it. You know, my heart is deceitfully wicked. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to doubt. But if I abide in Jesus, oh, if I abide in him, he'll abide in me. Oh, right? And so the word of God is this living thing. It is not just a book. It is not just a collection of books bound in leather or goatskin. For my 40th birthday, I had wanted a goatskin Bible for a long time, and Maribel and the kids pulled their resources and got me a goatskin Bible. But it is more than just a, a bunch of pages in binding. It is living and active. It has power because it's the word of God. You know, the word of God lays bare the human experience in all of its twists and turns. And I have rarely encountered any circumstance that God's word could not speak to directly or indirectly. I mean, it's, it's a decoder of life and your experiences. It is a tragic indictment against our culture in the information age that we all have more access to the Bible than we've ever had, but because it often is drowned out by so many competing distractions, we are a culture who probably reads the Bible less than any culture ever has. I mean, it's a tragic, right, indictment. I've done this before. You know, you've got like four Bible apps and you probably never read it during the week, right? There's so many distractions, but the word of God is there for us and the Bible does foretell a time when there's a famine of the word, but the storehouse is full, at least in our culture. Storehouse is full and we go around starving spiritually when all you got to do is open the pantry and there's all that you could need and want to fill your soul. My heart broke the other day when a longtime friend who I have believed was a Christian said to me, look man, uh, God isn't found in some magical book. It just broke my heart. We were going back and forth through text and I'd known this person to be a devoted believer for many, many years and that's a common trope in our culture right now, to call the Bible a magical book, right? Like, like it's no different than it's like a book of spells and incantations. It's a popular but tired trope. He'd been caught in a sin pattern that destroyed his marriage and was now destroying his new relationship. And he wanted to blame the Bible for naming what he was doing as a sin in the first place, right? Because he had not really truly found repentance, he wasn't really repentant because the sin is just carrying, he's, been, he's just carrying it along into the next relationship, and it's just it's burning down everything around him. And instead of saying, dropping to his knees, saying, Lord, I repent of this sin, which you've named in your word, he says, look, man, morality's not found in a magical book, bro. And it just cut me deeply. It hurt to hear him say that. Uh, look, magical or not, I actually say, um, well, the Bible is kind of magical. Because if, um, if, if magic is pointing to supernatural realities otherwise unaccessed in the natural world, it is absolutely a magical book. In the broad sense, it is supernatural, it is powerful. Yeah, it's magic. Maybe it's not Harry Potter magic with a wand, but it's a better kind of magic. Scripture has a supernatural power to sanctify us, and this is what Jesus prays 
He says, Father, keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is no postmodernist. He said, your word is truth. He doesn't say, your word is a kind of truth. Your word is a truth. Your word is truth. The word is truth. And in his mind, bringing us back to the word every single time will sanctify us. Now, you may not know what sanctify means, but what happens in the process of sanctification is that the righteousness that God declares over us through faith in Jesus starts to actually become a reality. So we are declared righteous when in reality we're not because we believe in Jesus, but over time we become more righteous. So it's not enough that God says, you're righteous because of your faith. God says, and I'm going to actually make you righteous. I'm going to conform your life pattern and the thoughts and intents of your heart to the Son of God. And over time we become more and more like God through the formation of Jesus in our hearts. And that often happens. It happens through the power and grace of the Holy Spirit, but it also happens through the Word of God. And so Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. It's interesting. These words come right after his prayer, keep them from the evil one. Keep me from the evil one. Let me keep the Word in my heart. Right? David said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I have not sinned against, that I might not sin against you. David also says in the Psalms that his foot almost stumbled when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, but it, wasn't, it was until he went into the sanctuary of God and discerned therein. That's Psalm 73. He said when he saw the arrogance, the pride, and the prosperity of the wicked, that he, he almost fell from his faith. His foot stumbled. This is David's way of saying, I was rocked, and I was shook. But when I went into the sanctuary, and I was exposed to your word and your ways and worship, then I realized where they're headed. The people right now who seem to to live and prosper freely without any bands, right? There's nothing that binds them or holds them back. They seem to, I mean, you know, it's like, have you seen people, you know, wicked people, and they're like King Midas. You know, everything they touch turns to gold, and here you are, you know, struggling to make it through every single day, going, what's going on here? And David says, I went into the sanctuary, and I discerned their end, and he goes on to say, David says, for God has set them in slippery places, David said, my foot almost slipped, but it's their foot who's going to slip. Sometimes you need to be reminded of that. We're not gloating that the wicked are going to fall and be destroyed, but sometimes you need to be reminded that God, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and that God upholds the righteous. He upholds his people. And then third, he prays that they might all be one. And this may be the most important aspect of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays that the church would be united as one the same way he and his Father are one. This is a tall task, right? The idea that the church, which is made up of many members, you're talking about believers throughout all ages. I mean, just think of the diversity of people in this room in terms of our different backgrounds, the way we think, our different experiences, right? And, and Jesus is saying, my prayer is that they would be one in the same way, Father, that you and I are one. 
And in verse 20, he says, I don't ask only for these, the disciples, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. It is this prayer for the future. It is a prayer about the future. Father, I pray that the disciples will be one and everyone who will ever believe on account of their word. I pray that they would be one as well. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You know, Jesus is sort of saying um, that the world, believing or not, stands and falls on the church's unity. Now, we know that God is at work, and through the Holy Spirit, he draws people to himself. But in some real significant way, the means of the church's unity is a proclamation of the gospel that causes people to believe, or it should. And adversely, you can think correctly that the church's disunity is also a stumbling block to would-be believers. And unity only happens through charity, Christian charity, which does not mean, you know, giving someone $5 you know, the biblical word charity means love. Um, there are two primary temptations the church goes through. One is to protect the teaching so fiercely that it walls itself off from anyone and, any, anyone and everyone who disagrees on even the most insignificant matters, right? So this is one tendency of the church. We're talking about unity, this third aspect of Jesus' prayer. And one one behavior or reaction is for the church to protect its doctrinal purity so tightly that it just becomes small and small, smaller and smaller. And this is why the church, the modern church, has been rent into thousands of denominations because everybody is, you know, dividing themselves off over, you know, I mean, not just orthodoxy, but like minuscule doctrinal points. I actually celebrate the fact that among us we have some peripheral, secondary theological differences, right? I mean, I have a certain view of the millennium and the end times, and there are people in here who have a different view of the end times, and I'm glad we're all in the same church because there's nothing to divide over. It's a secondary issue, but sometimes the church makes, it a, makes everything a matter of orthodoxy. I hope that you know what I mean by that. Like Everything's a matter of orthodoxy. We have to agree on every single thing, and then, and then you just divide over everything. The other temptation is to relegate all doctrine itself as divisive. This is another reaction. Well, we don't want to divide over anything, so we're just going to like declare that doctrine itself is divisive. And, and then what you have is the church becomes uh, merely a collection of people loosely connected by a vague belief in a semi-historical Jesus who lived long ago only as a good example, and that's it. Both are wrong. And because both doctrinal purity and church unity are equally important. I remember once asking, asking a seminary professor, um, my first year in seminary, being full of a lot of vinegar. You know, I had read a lot of theology before I got to seminary, and I was going to show, you know, if, if the professor, I thought, deviated a little bit, I was going to... So he was, he was walking this tightrope of, you know, like unity and... Doctrinal purity. And I said, well, what's more important, doctrinal purity or church unity? And he paused for a minute and he just said, yes. And I was frustrated because I thought it was a cop-out. But, like, but when I went home that evening, I thought about how profound that answer was. Because what he was saying is, it's hard to do both, but that's the job. That's our job. 
That's what we have to do. We have to do both. And sometimes we're pulled this way and pulled that way, but we're holding both of these things together. We are protecting the teaching that God has given us through Jesus and the disciples, and at the same time, we are doing everything in our power not to divide with one another, because here's the key, love has to be at work. Because all of your doctrinal precision and theological acumen doesn't matter for anything if love isn't working in your heart. It's interesting that when Paul speaks of the Corinthians who had, there was all this division in the Corinthian church, and people are arguing over whose gift is supreme, right? He says, look, guys uh, and gals, without love, all of your gifting profits you nothing in the first place. He uses the word charity, Christian charity. And so all the doctrine of purity in the world, all the theological precision, all of that doesn't matter without love. And a love that is devoid of doctrine and theology is kind of superficial and false anyway. And those, these things have to be held together. Our failure of unity is often a failure to love one another than it is to agree on our theology. <clears throat> Theological unity can only go so far without Christian charity. Uh, Paul says to the Ephesians um, that God has given the church different offices like apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers for the building up of the body and until we all come into the unity of the faith. We're getting there. We're working towards it. It is the goal. It's probably the most important aspect of Jesus's prayer here for the unity of the church. And my prayer for this church is unity that we would be so united in love that when we have disagreements, and I want to say um, that there have been some disagreements among, among us, um, which, funny thing, a disagreement can start off shallow and then run really deep. It can start off as an issue that is not that big of a deal, but as you rub the, as the friction happens with the person you're disagreeing with, it drives you further and further apart. And this is why people, you know, possibly leave churches and people, you know, there's church splits and all these different things. And my prayer for this church is unity and love, that we would be able to overcome differences, that we'd be able to truly treat one another as family members, right? Your family's your family even when you disagree, you argue with your sibling, but, you know, they're going to be there Thanksgiving because they're your sister, they're your brother. And that's my prayer for us, that we would be united as a family. And I close with Jesus's words in verse 23. I pray that they may be one, Father, so that the world may believe that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this word of truth and this challenge, Lord God, as we look to see what was on the very heart of Jesus as he prayed this intimate prayer with the Father. Father, grant us fellowship in the unity of the Spirit, so that the world might believe in him who you have sent, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who now lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.